quite a process to get to this date. Um, really, it started about six years ago when Trish and I lived on the other side of the state in Bloomer, Wisconsin, the rope jumping capital of the world. And, uh, and while we were there, God put on our heart to plant churches. And so we went to seminary. After seminary, we took uh, a position at, at New Hope Church here in Green Bay. And from there, uh, made plans to plant Jacob's Well. And so it's been a long process, uh, but we're finally here. In some ways, this is, this is the end of a process. In other ways, it's just the very beginning. And so we're so glad you're here with us as part of this journey. Uh, part of getting to this day... Uh, took just a lot of effort from a lot of people. It kind of reminds me of a political campaign, uh, how you have people using their time and their resources and their money, they're organizing, they're, they're putting up signs, they're calling people, they're raising money, they're doing all these things to promote this candidate. Uh, it's kind of like that, except... You know, our, our candidate is Jesus, which is a pretty good candidate to have. And so it's good to, it's good to finally be here. I, I was looking on the internet this week, um, just sort of some of the things that happens with presidential campaigns. And I was amazed to see how much money is spent on presidential campaigns. You may be aware of this. I think I was a little bit shocked when I saw the numbers. It, it sort of went back to 1952. And it said that in 1952, the campaign for both the candidates cost about $16 million. Now, it's a lot of money, $16 million. That was in 1952. In 1972, it was $90 million. And so it jumped quite a bit. 1996, $120 million. And then this is the one that blows me away. So 1996, $120 million. In the year 2008, this last presidential election, it jumped from $120 million to $5.3 billion. That is a huge jump. A huge jump. So from 1956 to 2008, there was a 3,000% increase and the money used towards presidential campaigns. And so I, I look at that and I sit back and I think, why all the money? Why is there so much money going towards electing your guy towards being president? And really, I think it's something that God has put in our hearts. We all long for a king. We long for a good king who will work righteously and justly. We look at our nation and we see things like poverty. We see things like joblessness, the economy falling. We even look at our own lives and we see things that, we, that could be better. And we think, you know, if we elect this president, then maybe things will be better. And they might be, but temporarily. Uh, as they stay in office. And so we all long for this king. We all long for this advocate that will make our lives more the way that they're supposed to be. This is something that is nothing new. Uh, everyone uh, from history past to now has, has longed for this king. This passage that we're looking at today shows the longing for a king. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 12. If you have one of those red Bibles, it's page 899. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, John is the name of the book. Uh, 12 is, is a chapter, and so we're in John chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, so the, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. And as you open there, just to give you guys a little bit of flavor of Jacob's well, we love the Bible here. 
you won't have to stay here long to see that. We believe that it's God's word, that it's true. And it seems kind of silly to, to, to maybe come up with my own thoughts or my own imagination when we have God writing to us about his love and grace and mercy. And so as we open up the Bibles, after we read the, the scripture for today, I'd encourage you to keep it open because we'll actually go back and look at it uh, a few times as we try to develop what is God trying to say to the culture at that time, but also to us, all right? So let's look at John chapter 12, and we'll read verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. Fear not, daughters, uh, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come today to celebrate Palm Sunday, to celebrate the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, God, pray that you would Help us to see what kind of king you are. Pray that as we, uh, as we explore even the longings of our own heart for a good king that is an advocate for us, God, that we might see that you are that king. You are the one that our hearts long for, God. And it doesn't cost us money, but it does cost us our life to surrender it to you, God because you have surrendered your life. Lord, pray that as, as we read and hear the preached word of God, that you would transform our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So in this passage, they call Jesus king, the king of Israel, right? And he had a cell phone go off and he picked it up as he was riding in. But Jesus is the king of Israel and they're yelling, Hosanna to the king of Israel. And so what we want to look at today is what kind of king was Jesus? Um, if he was different than the kings that we have today, the presidents and people like that, what kind of king was Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at. First, we're going to see, um, if you, by the way, if you have your bulletin, you'll see that there's a place there. If you're a note taker, personally, I'm not. But if you're a note taker, there's an outline of kind of what we're going to go through, what we're going to talk about, and what kind of king Jesus is. So first we're going to look and see how Jesus is the expected king. Jesus was expected by these people because he was prophesied about. In the passage here, in verse 14 it says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He says, just as it was written. It was written in the Old Testament that Jesus would come on a donkey, that the Messiah, that the Christ would come in on a donkey. 
Now, what the Old Testament is, the Old Testament is sort of the first two-thirds of your Bible. And what it is, is it takes us from the very beginning to about 400 years before Jesus comes. At the very beginning, it says, in the beginning, God created. So it starts at creation, runs all the way through to 400 years before Jesus comes. And in that time, there's this prophecy from Zechariah saying that the Messiah, the Christ, who's coming, will come in on a donkey. Now, the purpose of this was to give them uh, ways to identify this Messiah, right? Because a lot of people even today say, you know, I am, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, people should follow after me. And so God gave these indications of, hey, look for this, and you will know that he is the Messiah. You know, if I went to the Packer games with my son, and uh, I wanted to point out to him a certain player, say they're running out of the tunnel, I'll say, Hey, Corbin, that's my oldest son's name. Corbin, look for, look for number 12, right? That's Aaron Rodgers, hopefully. Um, look for number 12. That, that number is sort of an indicator to help him identify who's there. God says, I want to help you identify the Messiah when he comes because he's not going to really look exactly what you were hoping him to look like. And so you'll see him coming in on a donkey and you'll know that he's the Messiah. Now, you could think, okay, you know, these people, they all read Zechariah 9.9 where this prophecy came from. And they all knew that the, the Messiah, the king, would come in on a donkey. Maybe Jesus just read that too and thought, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. You know, I'll, I'll ride in on a donkey because that way everyone will think that I'm the king, that I'm the Messiah. Uh, and I can understand why you might think that. It's still amazing that he gathered all those people. But here's the kicker. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. And these aren't just, you know, obscure ones like he will have ten toes, right? Hair on his, on his arms. They're not obscure. They're very specific. Like he will be born in Bethlehem. He will come up out of Egypt. When he dies, they will cast lots for his clothes. And Jesus fulfills every single prophecy from the Old Testament. 300 of them plus. And all of those happened more than 400 years before Jesus was ever born. And so there's no way he could go around checking off the boxes. Hey, I fulfilled that prophecy. I fulfilled that prophecy. Because a lot of them were even the place that he would be born. In Bethlehem. And so what we see, what's really neat, is that God gives all these indications to people so that they might identify who is the true Messiah, who is the true Christ. One of those is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. We have a very credible faith. You may be here investigating Christianity, and we are so glad you're here. If you watch PBS and some other shows on TV, you probably think that we have a very blind faith, a very uh, unintelligent faith. And yet we look at passages like this in which Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies. And we know that, yes, it is faith that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, but it is not an intellectual faith. And so at Jacob's Well, if you stick around, you'll see that we will continue to give you all the reasons that we know that Jesus is the Christ. We will continue to build the case in your heart and in ours that he is the Messiah. He is the king that we've been longing for. And so he was the expected king because he was prophesied about. But Jesus was also the expected king because the people were longing for him. They were eager that he would come.
See, they took those prophecies from the Old Testament and there was so much hope for them when they saw those, that they were eager for Him to come. The political situation in the time of Jesus was not very good for the Israelites. It wasn't very good for the Jews. They, uh, they, were, they were under Roman rule, and so they had some freedom to do some things, but really they were, they were under the thumb of the Romans, and they didn't have the freedom that they wanted. The Romans had done things like slaughtering their children uh, when Jesus was born. They had also done things like putting idols in their temple, which they didn't like, and so they really didn't like the Romans. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you go to the mall and you see those kids on a leash um, or a harness, whatever you would call them, right? Uh, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but uh, those kids have freedom to a certain amount, right? But as soon as they get somewhere that their parents don't want them, they can just yank them back, right? This is kind of what it was like to be under Roman rule. They had a little bit of freedom, but if they ever stepped a little bit out of bounds, the Romans would just yank them back. They would lay down the hammer. And so they were being oppressed by the Romans and they were waiting for liberation. They were waiting for the Messiah. Now, when we look at Zechariah 9.9, which is where this prophecy comes from, that he will come on a cult, that the Messiah will come, the context in which it is written is really important. Uh, Israel has just been overtaken in 586 B.C., it's been overtaken by the Babylonians. And then they're also ruled by the Persians later. And so you have throughout the course of 700 years for the Israelites, there is this, this, these, these different countries coming in, conquering them, and then they have a little bit of freedom, but then they get conquered again. And so they look back to these prophecies and they look and they say, when is this Messiah going to come? When is this Christ going to come? When is the man going to come that's going to finally set us free? And so they are longing for this Messiah. My, uh, I have a friend, his name is Ricky Vargas. He's, he's currently in Mexico. And Ricky grew up in California. And he met his wife, who's from Green Bay, while he was serving in Mexico. And they decided to move up here. And so they move up here in May, um, I believe it's three years ago, no longer that. But they move up here in May, and Ricky said, I couldn't believe everybody was smiling. He's like, why was everybody in Green Bay, Wisconsin so happy in May? Well, he, uh, after the next winter, he figured it out. <laughs> Everybody's so happy in May because the winter is finally over. You can go outside. You can frolic in the grass. This weekend coming up is actually supposed to be up in the 70s. Look and see how many people are smiling, right? It's a happy time of the year for us. These Israelites went through a very long winter, over 500 years, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the King to come. And then when he did come, they were just gushing over him. They were yelling out, Hosanna in the highest. He has finally come. Our liberation is here. This is the king that we have been longing for. And that's why they worshipped him. That's why they sought him. Because the king was coming that was going to bring salvation. It wasn't going to be from the Romans, but it was going to be salvation from themselves. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So Jesus was the expected king. And yet at the same time, Jesus was also the unexpected king. He didn't fit the 
expectations of maybe what the people thought this Messiah was going to be like. Look in verse 13 with me. He says this, So they took branches on palm trees and went to meet him, being Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This taking of palm branches like we did this morning, this is what they did for kings when they came back from war. And so if your city is in trouble, if people are coming to conquer your city, You send the king out with the troops, and they go and they fight, and when they win, if they win, when they come back, you have a parade for them coming into town, and you have these palm branches, and you're saying Hosanna to them. And so this is a royal welcome for Jesus, a welcome fit for a king, as they call him king. You know, they they, they expected Jesus to be a political messiah. They expected him to be this king that would come and overthrow the Romans. But he wasn't that at all. He was something much different and much greater. We actually see this expectation uh, the Passover the previous year. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And then it says in John 6.15, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so when people came to Jesus, they saw how great and wonderful he was, and they wanted to make him this political king, and he constantly ran away from it. But on this day, on this Palm Sunday, on this triumphal entry, he accepts their praises. He accepts their acknowledgement of him as king, the one that they had been longing for. When Trisha uh, Trisha's my wife. I believe she's back helping out with the children right now. You may not know by looking at her, but she's a heck of a basketball player. Uh, She would beat any of you in horse. (laughs) Unless you get her to start giggling, and then it's all over. She can't shoot once she starts laughing. But when Trish was in high school, her junior year of high school, they won the state basketball championship. They were from a small town called Fall Creek, Wisconsin, about 1,600 people. And when they came back on the, on the bus, back into the town, the town sent out fire trucks to bring them in. They had a parade for them. They were celebrating this victory that they had. It's very much a picture of what they're doing for Jesus. They're celebrating the victory that Jesus didn't have but was going to have. They were proactive in it. And so they were celebrating the coming of the king, thinking that he was political, but Jesus knowing better. He was also an unexpected king, not only because he wasn't political, but because he was extremely humble. It mentions here in verse 14 that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And Zechariah even says that he will come with humility mounted on a donkey. This is not how a victor comes into town on a donkey. Usually for war, they would use these great, amazing horses with these medallions and and all this jewelry on it and these, these cloaks on it. But Jesus was coming in on a donkey. And so, you know, it'd be like if someone showed at your house, up at your house with a, with a Toyota uh, or a tank, right? There, there's quite a bit of difference, right? This beat up 85 Toyota Corolla versus a brand new tank. Or, or even maybe like a cruise ship versus a, uh, versus a naval ship. And so Jesus comes in with this great humility on a donkey. And you look at it and you wonder, why would God do this? 
Why would God bring Jesus in on a donkey? Why not give him that great stallion, that great war horse, that people would know that he is the king? And the reason why they brought him in on a donkey was because they needed to know that his humility was their path for salvation. It was because he was humble that we can be saved. You see, back in Philippians chapter 2, another book in the, in the New Testament, it talks about the humility of Christ in two parts. One, Jesus was humble enough to come to earth. He was, he was king. He was God. He had the worship and adoration of angels. And then he was born of a woman in a manger. A very humble beginning. But he also came to be a servant of all, to become a servant of you. And so the king of the universe who made you came to serve you. But coming in on a donkey pointed to even a greater humility that Philippians 2 talks about. The humility of being sacrificed on the cross. Ephesians 2 puts it like this. It says, And being found in human form, which is humble enough for God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he was stripped naked. He was spit on and cussed at by people that he knit together in their mother's wombs. By people that he had formed were hurling insults at him. And you wonder, why would God do this? Why would God humble himself, let himself be humiliated? Why would he let people do these things to him if he was all-powerful? And the reason why he did it was for you. He humbled himself for you. See, just as we long for a king, our king longs for you. He longs for your heart. So much so that he humbled himself to come to earth and die on a cross for you. Because he loves you and cares for you. And so the humility of Jesus was of utmost importance because that is the means by which he's given the opportunity of salvation to all of us. There was a, uh, there were some European missionaries. I'm thinking this is probably in the 19th century. Um, they were told that they could not go to the West Indies to tell the good news about Jesus Christ because they wanted to go and talk to the slaves. And the caste system there was so rigorous that they would not be able to go and talk to the slaves about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so two of the men from that missionary movement decided to leave their families and sell themselves into a lifetime of slavery. They humbled themselves to become slaves so that they could tell these people about the love that God has for them, that he cares for them, that he died for them. You know, as, as, we, as we look at what Jesus has done for us, as we look at his humility, could this be the king that you're longing for? Could this be the king that you have been hoping for that many before have disappointed you? If, if you are new, if you are checking out Jesus, if you are checking out Christianity, this is a safe place to come and investigate who Jesus is, this humble, amazing king. If you have trusted in Christ and you understand his humility in dying for you, this is a great call to us to go and humiliate ourselves. Not, not 
not destroy ourselves, but with humility go and serve others as Christ has served us. Serving those who are needy, serving those who can't pay you back, serving those who maybe um, don't smell good, don't talk good, those who maybe don't give you uh, encouragement, but we're allowed to go and serve because that's what the God of the universe did for you in humility. And so Jesus is the expected king. He was prophesied about. Uh, People were eager to see him. He was also the expected king, um, the unexpected king, excuse me, because he was not political. He was humble, unlike any other king before. But finally, what we see is that Jesus is a polarizing king. What I mean by polarizing is that people either loved him or hated him. Just previous to this passage, the events leading up into the triumphal entry are are extremely important. About two months prior to this, Jesus had gone to Mary and Martha because they had lost their brother Lazarus. And he was in the grave. He was dead. He smelled, the Bible said. He was really dead. A bunch of Jews showed up to comfort Mary and Martha. And Jesus comes and he says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And what happens from there is very important. Some of the Jews, they leave. And they go and they they, they hate that Jesus is gaining popularity. And they go and they tell the Sanhedrin. Other Jews fall in love with Jesus. They begin to believe in Jesus. They begin to follow Jesus. But that that group of Jews that that just started hating Jesus all the more, they gathered together in what's called the Sanhedrin, and they started to plot out to kill Jesus because he was getting too popular, because the world was going after him. And they plotted to kill him so vigorously that they made this edict to all the Jews. They said, if you see this man, Jesus, we want you to turn him into us. And now... They're not turning Jesus over to the Sanhedrin, to the political leaders. They're turning to Jesus as the king, which just made them hate him all the more. You look in this passage, and it talks about how, in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when Lazarus was raised out of the tomb, uh, they continued to bear witness to him. You know, you can see what a person treasures by what they speak of. Might be their kids, might be their car, might be their home, might be their work. You see what people treasure. These people could not stop talking about this man, Jesus. That's why there was such a great crowd of people around him when he came in and they had the palm branches. It goes on in verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Our plan is not working. We wanted to bring Jesus in so that we could kill him. But look! The world has gone after him. Can you imagine how frustrated they are? This is, this is kind of like any good action film. Um, my favorite is Braveheart. You know, you, you have William Wallace, for those of you who have seen it. And William Wallace starts to gain this following. And people actually want to sort of make him his own king and follow after him. But he doesn't, he doesn't want it. It's not what he's called to do. And so these people start following after him and the English who are the enemy in this movie just get more and more angry because everybody is following after him. And what's really neat in this movie is that William Wallace ended up going to die. 
instead of becoming king. But with Jesus, not only does he die for us, he still is the king. He is the king that we worship, that we follow. Jesus is a very polarizing king. People hate him because they're the king that they've been longing for, or they hate him because they think he is this imaginary tooth fairy trying to tell them what to do with their lives. As I said earlier, come back, stay with Jacob's well, learn about this man, Jesus. When I was a little kid, I'll end with this illustration, I, um, I was in the front of my house, and we had this, this sewer lid. Uh, I, I believe it was probably made in Wisconsin. I grew up in St. Louis. But I, I got my fingers sort of, there's a little hole. I got my fingers in there and picked the lid up, and I got my fingers under there to try to lift the lid off. But by that time, I was so tired that the lid just fell on my fingers and it was pinching me so that I couldn't get out. And so I'm sitting there, kind of like this, trying to lift the lid, but I'm too weak to do it. And I'm sitting there right in my front yard. Cars are going past. No one sees anything. And so I start yelling, help, help. Someone come help me, please. And finally, after about five minutes, my dad comes out of the house. You know, he's a big, strong guy. He lifts it up and I'm free to go. This is sort of a picture of what the Israelites were like at this time. They were desperate for a king. They were desperate for a good king. And I would challenge you that you are, you are just as desperate for a king. They said this word. They said, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This word Hosanna, when it occurs in the New Testament, it only occurs during the triumphal entry, but it occurs a lot in the Old Testament. And when it occurs in the Old Testament, it's talking about God. It's talking about the God who delivered the Israelites away from the Egyptians, away from their oppressors. And what it literally means is, Lord, save us now. They're saying, Lord, save us now. Hosanna, Lord, save us. We need salvation. We are desperate for a king to save us. Jesus may not be the king that you expected, but Jesus is the king that you need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we scream out, Hosanna, because we need a king. We long for a king to save us. We long for a king that would make everything right. One that would reconcile us to God. One that would pay for our sin at the cross, God. Lord, we pray that you would Work in our hearts to show us the goodness of you as king. That we might worship you. That we might serve you. That we might fall more in love with you. Thank you that not only do we long for a king, but the king longs for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.